Yeah, it's the one acceptable form of, of racism and hatred. We'll confront it today. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. It is Thursday, Jewish Thursday. Welcome, welcome to the broadcast, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Any Jewish-related question you have for me of any kind, if you are a Jewish listener or viewer and don't agree with my beliefs about Jesus being the Messiah, by all means, give me a call. If you've got a question or want to challenge me on something great, you need clarity on an issue, anyone from any perspective, Hebrew-related, Jewish tradition-related regarding Israel today. Any of those questions, we'll do our best to give you solid answers. 866-34-TRUTH. And as always, a lot to cover, a lot to talk about in the Jewish world. All right. As we see racism being exposed in different fronts in America, racism being confronted We also see that racism goes in all different kinds of directions. Now, there is the viewpoint, a a more modern definition of racism, that racism can only apply to those who have power over others. So as someone was arguing with me on Twitter the other day, racism is power plus prejudice. But that's, that's not what the word actually means. And if you think of this for a second, you think of this, and then I'll explain where I'm going with this today. Think of this. Let's say you were raised in a Ku Klux Klan family in the South, in Alabama, and you grew up as a white person despising blacks, thinking blacks were inferior, thinking blacks were not on the same level of humanity as you, thinking blacks were not loved and favored by God the same way. That's how you grew up. That's how you feel, all right? And you live in a society where whites are dominant in the majority and therefore can discriminate against blacks, okay? And, and you discriminate against them yourself. You don't treat them the same way. So you're racist. Okay, now for reasons beyond your control, you are relocated to live in Nigeria. And you are among the tiny, 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 tiny white population in Nigeria. And your hatred for blacks becomes even more intense. And your negative judgments against them becomes even more intense. But there's nothing you could really do about it except just give people dirty looks if you dare or whatever or just curse them in, under your breath. Are you not still a racist? Is not that still racism? Of course it is. So lots of things are surfacing. And there is a, an anti-white racism in the hearts of blacks. You say it's understandable. It may be with history. It's, it's never justifiable, though. It's certainly not helpful. My newest article addresses the question that racism or, or addresses this, the fact that racism cannot drive out racism. But what's always going to surface, you know what's going to happen sooner or later, is going to be Jew hatred, anti-Semitism. It's, it's got to happen because that's the oldest hatred of all, and it's the most persistent hatred through the centuries. And that's been well documented. I documented it in Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. It's been documented in many other places over the centuries right to this day. So no surprise when NFL player Deshaun Jackson, over a week ago, 
puts out his tweets with alleged quotes from Hitler and, and Jews and the real Jews, blacks and the real Jews, but I mean, quoting Hitler and apologizing and so on and a mild uproar would have been a much worse uproar if, say, a white player had used the N-word and praised some, some slave trader from the past. But there was, there was an uproar. Thankfully, Deshaun Jackson seeking to make things right. As many ready met with the local rabbi, talked to a Holocaust survivor, I believe, wants to go to Auschwitz. So I, I genuinely believe he, he is contrite over this. I mean, I hope so, but I, I'm going to take someone at their word. And when they ask, when they apologize, I, I'll forgive. All right? So now, more recently, others have come out. Nick Cannon, known in various capacities as an entertainer and, and show host, and was he a host on one of the people on The Masked Singer, that, that newer show? In any case, Viacom, the, the, the network, the company that hired him, he speaks some wrong things, ugly things about whites and about Jews, and then does an interview with a former member of a major hip-hop rap group that actually dropped this member many years ago when he spoke against Jews. So that's interesting. That's interesting. So Nick Cannon then goes absolutely crazy over this. And, you know, whites by nature are savages and this and that, and lays into Jews. And then he was fired by Viacom in one of his jobs and wouldn't back down. Others came to his defense. But now he has subsequently issued an apology. And we'll get to that a little later. I'm just sitting on the stage. A very, very sincere apology, not not to whites for what he said about whites, but what he said about Jews specifically, at least as of what I've seen now. He hasn't said anything apologizing for what he said about whites, but he has about Jews. And really, in, in, in the way you'd want someone to apologize and want to get things right, already spoke to to a prominent rabbi uh, who deals with, with uh, Holocaust issues and things like that. And, and I, I think he genuinely wants to get this right and genuinely wants understanding here. But what has emerged, and, all, and again, that's, that's what I hope. I, I like to take people at their word, all right? And every one of us has done or said something stupid at a certain point. We wish we could take back some of us multiple times. So when we genuinely apologize, repent, try to make things right, we should be welcomed there, and then let's prove our repentance by our deeds, right? That's how you, you look at it. But what has surfaced in all this is the influence of Louis Farrakhan in the nation of Islam. That's what has surfaced. The degree that different black celebrities, others, athletes, entertainers, influential people have looked to Louis Farrakhan, not just as someone that they see as an inspirational leader for their people, but also as someone whose views they have digested in terms of anti-Semitism, Jew hatred. One of Farrakhan's most infamous comments last year was that he's not anti-Semite, he's anti-termite, likening Jews to termites, knowing full well that Hitler, the Nazis, likened Jews to parasites. These are nuisances that are destructive that you destroy, parasite, termite. So ugly, ugly comments from Louis Farrakhan. In any case, what many don't realize is the influence of the nation of Islam and the influence of Louis Farrakhan in the black community. Now, here's what makes things all the more interesting. In the civil rights movement, there were many Jewish leaders that really fought for their black brothers and sisters because even though Jews are a very influential minority here in America, all right, and in certain parts of the world, 
through our history, we have been anything but that. We have been despised and cast out. We've been rejected. We, we, have, we have been exiled from country after country because we refuse to be baptized or refuse to convert to Islam and, and have suffered much as being Jews. And I'm sure some of it's divine discipline and others the hatred of men, the hatred of Satan. But in the early days of the civil rights movement and at the height of it, there were prominent Jewish leaders side by side with Dr. King and others at the famous March for Washington. It was a rabbi who spoke right before Dr. King. Yeah, obviously overshadowed by, by the oratory of Dr. King that day, but there he was speaking as a Jew, fellow nations of liberated slaves who've known hatred and persecution simply for Jews for being Jews and blacks for being blacks. So commonality there. But over the years, uh, that commonality has not been felt as much. And there's been much more tension. And in some communities living side by side, there's been the, the feeling of many blacks that Jews look down at them or despise them or think of them as, as not as, as worthy as, as they are. And, and so there's been that feeling that, that many blacks have felt living in side by side in certain Jewish communities. And then Jews have felt you know, that they're just trying to live their lives and they're getting robbed and attacked by blacks. And so there's, there's been tension. And, and I'm sure there's fault on, on all sides because you've got human beings here. But now this is all kind of coming to the surface. So during, for example, a, a BLM protest riot in, in L.A., synagogues were vandalized. Synagogues were vandalized and, and, and with anti-Semitic slogans and Holocaust-related imagery and things like that. You think, well, wait, I thought this was a protest against police brutality and standing up for black lives. How does it end up being anti-Semitic? Because the devil is always at work seeking to divide and destroy. All right? It's just the way he is and seeking to incite all kinds of hatred and anger against others. So here's what happened on Twitter. Uh, Times of Israel reports tales of Jewish suffering take over anti-Semitic Jewish privilege hashtag. Twitter trend sees over 100,000 people share personal stories of discrimination, including U.S. comedian Sarah Silverman and other well-known figures. Uh, there's, there's a tweet here I'm going to read in a minute, but let me back up and explain what happened. People tweeting out about white privilege, white privilege, and, and wanting to address these issues in society. So some anti-Semites start tweeting out using the hashtag Jewish privilege, Jewish privilege. And it, it starts to draw some responses. So here, um, I'm not going to mention the names. One guy or gal tweets, Jewish celebrities deny their Jewish privilege by playing their Holocaust trademark get out of jail free card. Oh, so that's it. Jewish celebrities, they enjoy Jewish privilege, but you can't criticize them because they bring up the Holocaust. This is typical anti-Semitic rhetoric. Uh, here's, here's another, another Jewish privilege hashtag with the typical demonized picture of a Jewish rabbi hook-nosed and all this. This was used, of course, by the Nazis and it's used to this day in Islamic polemics. First and foremost, I extend my deepest and most sincere apologies to my Jewish sisters and brothers for the hurtful and divisive words that came out of my mouth during my interview with Richard Griffin. A man chooses, a slave obeys. Ah, so the apology here is, is because of the mastery of the Jews over the Gentile slaves. Um, so what is actual Jewish privilege? Well, Han Nazig tweeted this out. And it was in the Times of Israel report. Jewish privilege 
is when my grandparents were violently forced out of Iraq and Tunisia for being with only the clothes, on, for being Jewish with only the clothes on their back, along with 850,000 other um, MENA Jews, Middle Eastern national, national, nationality Jews. They arrived to Israel with nothing, only spoke Arabic and lived in a tent, tin shack for years. That's Jewish privilege. And M-E-N-A, I guess that that's what it stands for. In any case, in any case, yeah, Jewish privilege. Now, just watch this phrase. It's going to be out there. And, well, you can't, you can't criticize the Jews. Look, friends, let's just be equal in our treatment of all. If we're going to be sensitive to name-calling and, and racism and attacking people for ethnicity, let's be consistent and hold to a high standard for everyone. Somehow, though, Jew hatred, that's, that's allowed in some circles. That's okay because Jews are always bad. Jews are always guilty. They deserve it, right? We'll be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. Daily Beast reports recently big name black entertainers like Ice Cube, Nick Cannon, Diddy, The Jackson, Stephen and Jason. And even beloved author Alice Walker have spouted, spouted age-old anti-Semitic talking points, usually by quoting known bigot Louis Farrakhan, insisting that, quote, the Jews run everything and locating black liberation and anti-Jewish suspicion. Just watch for this trend. Anti-Semitism, Jew hatred being something that flows right through the BLM movement, which we reject while standing with the affirmation that black lives do matter. All right, more to talk about with this, but we'll go to the phones first. 866-34-TRUTH. We'll start with our friend Zach in Honolulu. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for having me. You bet. Cool. Um, So I called a couple weeks ago. Um, I'm a fellow Jewish believer in the Messiah. And uh, so this time I'm wondering, I uh, heard that you said that there are, you know, also, like Asian Jews and Black Jews, and so on and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering what you meant by that, because you know, like I've always, just, you know, associated Jewishness as an ethnic thing. You know, since you know, you and I are both Messianic Jews, I just you know figured that it's a ethnic thing. But I would like to hear what you. Yeah. So, Zach, uh, are, are you? I, I assume you're you're Caucasian. Yeah. All right. So, um, were the ancient Israelites Caucasian? Probably not. I mean, exactly. You know, so if it was <laughs> right, right. So the ethnicities have to have been blended. Otherwise, how, how do we get here as as white Jews? And then yeah. how are there Ethiopian Jews, you know, black Jews and so on? So so here's the way it's, it's worked, basically, <clears throat> is that um, over the centuries, as Jewish people, <clears throat> excuse me, have been scattered around the world, that there has been assimilation through intermarriage. So we get completely lost in the nations, right? So you intermarry with a Gentile and then your kids do and so on and, and you completely assimilate and there's no Jewish trace that's, that's to be found. Or people convert to Judaism and become part of the people of Israel. So for example, Ruth, 
joining the people of Israel. Rahab, joining the people of Israel. So as the Jewish people scattered around the world and people converted to Judaism from the areas where they lived and became part of the Jewish people, and more and more did, then the Jewish people living in these different places began to take on those ethnic uh, characteristics as well. Hence, Asian Jews, African Jews, American Jews, Mexican Jews, Russian Jews, and in every stripe and color. Now, the ones that would have the, the truest bloodline claim would be those that are Middle Eastern Jews that have lived in the Middle East through the centuries and, and have more pedigree in that way. But most all of us can trace ourselves back. Uh, but again, it would be intermarriage in. When it's intermarriage out, we completely assimilate. Intermarriage in then people become part of the Jewish community, raise their families within Judaism. So you have, you have the physical bloodline, which then mixes with people converting in. And if converts become a dominant number at any point, then obviously you're going to begin to look more and more like those peoples. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. I mean, like that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, hmm. Can I ask you another question? Yeah, go go ahead. Sure thing. Okay, cool. So um, it's it, uh, it's actually funny how you brought up Jewish privilege because uh, uh, sort of recently I actually wrote a post just sort of, you know, this is out of sort of guilt and I just felt like a need to write this. But on a Facebook post I wrote, you know, like just basically acknowledging my, you know, so-called white privilege and also Jewish privilege. And, uh, you know, it, it garnered a lot of positive uh, feedback, thankfully. Um but just hearing what you shared with those, you know, those like Twitter hashtags and so on and so forth, it just seems a little, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, but it's, uh, I guess it's sort of similar to the, you know, I guess what I think of is the question that I asked a couple weeks ago about the advantages of being Jewish, which is, you know, the, uh, right. you know, um, you know, the, you know, how, you know. Um, so yeah, so, like so the, the, real, the real question really, is, the real question is, historically, is there such a thing as Jewish privilege? Basically, we get judged first, we get hated first, we get rejected first. So that's with greater accountability. Amos 3.1, you only have I known out of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for your iniquities. That's what God said to Israel. So Romans 2, what does it say? That judgment comes to the Jew first and blessing comes to the Jew first. But through history, you want to see what Jewish life was commonly like, watch Fiddler on the Roof. I mean, that gives you a better idea of what Jewish privilege was like, to be honest. Yeah, thank you, Zach, for the call. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. And David uh, posting on Facebook, yes, the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar article, I'm going to get to that in a moment, where he calls out anti-Semitism in sports in Hollywood. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I remember following him uh, when he was on UCLA as Lou Alcindor, then converted to Islam and became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So you know him as one of the greatest basketball players of all time. But he's a uh, not only great athlete, he's a deep thinker. Obviously, I've differed with some of his conclusions and thoughts over the years, but he's a deep thinker, as you see reflected in this article. Uh, let us go to Eliel in Maryland. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey there, Dr. Brown. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, God bless you. I want to say also thank you for you know providing us with such uh, rich knowledge. It's really uh, 
edified me as a uh, as a fellow brother in Christ. Uh, my question today is not as uh, as relevant as these other questions, but um, it is in regards to uh, the oneness Pentecostal view uh, of of who God is. And I guess my my question is really this: uh, What are what's the greatest error that uh, that we find in that in that ideology in that view of oneness? Uh, you know, from my my limited perspective, it really just seems like it is just a a different view uh, of how God manifests Himself. It, you know, maybe you could clarify a little bit on that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so the the oneness view can be oversimplified. There is some theological sophistication to it, as much as I I differ with it. Uh, so it can be presented in an overly simplified way, but there are oneness theologians that argue their their points. There's an excellent book by Michael Burgos, B-U-R-G-O-S. He sent me a copy of it to look at. T- to me, is the most up-to-date refutation of, of oneness theology. But I absolutely affirm that God is one, and there's one God only. That is, you could say, the most fundamental statement in the Bible after the existence of God, that there's one God and one God only. So we wholeheartedly affirm that, and oneness Pentecostals would say, look, we're closer to the Jewish view and, and the Old Testament view than you are. Your Trinitarian view is, is later, church theology. To me, the fundamental error is, is not reckoning with what the Bible really says and trying to find a system uh, to make this one God maybe fit within our own thinking as opposed to recognizing that God is complex in his unity, that he is hidden and, and yet revealed, that he is uh, transcendent and yet imminent, that he is seen and yet unseen, and that is because he is Father, Son, and Spirit. And to me, it's the only fair and right way to read the many texts that, that come in uh, into play, to just say that it's how God manifests himself That'd be fine with me, theoretically. You know what I'm saying? If, whatever, let God be God. If, right. if, if he simply manifested himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, and there's not triunity there, and that's how he manifested himself, and that's what the Bible said, then I worship God. I don't, I don't decide who he is. I worship him for who he is. But the distinctions of, of, of personhood, the, uh, the Holy Spirit drawing attention to Jesus and Jesus pointing everyone to the Father, and, and that's all just just different manifestations, kind of like different hats that God would put on. Obviously, I reject it. No, I fully affirm that that Revelation 22 tells us that we will see his face, not their faces. So the overwhelming emphasis of Scripture is, is on the oneness of God, the unity of God. But to me, there's a real serious misreading of many texts that, that break down fundamentally with the oneness theology and and that cannot cannot withstand scriptural scrutiny. To me, though, it's important that we emphasize that we worship one God and one God only, but that he's complex in his unity. That, to me, is being faithful to scripture and something that I believe that Jewish people are able to grasp. Obviously, the Holy Spirit has to open eyes, but even coming from Jewish tradition, that there are bridges, there are things that are different but parallel within Judaism that we can say, hey, you see it like this, here's how we understand it. That can be a bridge of understanding for them. Correct. Actually, going back to Revelation 22, like you had mentioned, I don't want to take up too much time, but verse 3 is something that I was discussing this morning with my dad over some coffee, and and it was sort of, 
it seemed paradoxical to me just for some reason I couldn't really grasp it but it was that uh, on the throne was God and uh, and the lamb was also there so 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 how does that work exactly so right so when it when scripture just speaks of God generically it's only speaking of the Father because you'll have clear verses that exalt Jesus as divine and yet, generally speaking, the vast majority of cases, especially in the New Testament, when God is just referenced as God, that is the Father. When there's reference to Lord, that's often referring to Jesus as Lord. But there, there's no question that God and the Lamb are distinct, and yet, when worshipped, there's only one. So one God, but clearly distinct in personhood within God. And it's not just, it's not paradoxical, it's majestic and it's beyond our understanding. But if we step back and say, one God, Father, Son, Spirit, complex in his unity, then it makes sense. Hey, Elio, thank you for the call. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, I've got a question for you. When God forgives you, how does he forgive you? Grudgingly? belatedly, way, 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 way after, or maybe I'll think about it then. How, how does he do it? Or do, does he forgive freely? When we come to him through the cross, does he forgive freely? Well, Paul writes in Colossians 3, as the Lord has forgiven us, we should forgive one another. Now, you can debate and say, well, we forgive when someone comes to us and asks for forgiveness. We don't just forgive first. That's a whole other subject. Let's start with this. Someone comes to you, I, I am so sorry, I, I, I spoke rudely to you, I maligned you, I was cruel, I did this, uh, please forgive me. I, I, I take responsibility, I, I take ownership, I'm, I'm guilty, I, please forgive me. And uh, what can I do to fix this? Well, let's see, you're going to have to prove it to me. Let's, all right, well, you know how much damage, is that the way God forgives us? No. He forgives and we make a fresh start. I had someone really mess things up with me one time and they, they came and apologized, really grovel. I said, hey, I forgive you, I forgive you. It was a, it was a real mess, but I forgive you. And in my heart, I forgave you already, but now I'm, I'm extending it to you. I forgive you, let's move on. And not that long afterwards, they were just feeling bad again and brought it up. I said, what are you talking about? I said, that doesn't exist, I forgave you. Now, it doesn't mean that if someone completely violated your trust, all right, and, and I'm tying this in with early Jewish Thursday in a moment. If someone violated your trust and, you know, they were a business partner and they cost you millions of dollars and bankrupted you and they, they come back in tears and please forgive me and I want to make things right and, and okay, we forgive from the heart and we hug and we say, yeah, it's, it's devastated our family. It's been very terrible, but I want you to know as a brother, I forgive you. It doesn't mean you say, okay, let's, let's do in the partnership. Let's hear, here's more millions. I mean, there are things where someone will prove themselves, obviously. And then there are certain things where you make a decision, you know, it's not smart for you. You know, someone does something abusive with one of your kids, they come and apologize, and, you know, maybe they're in jail for what they did, and you forgive them from the heart. It doesn't mean you say, hey, when you go out of jail, you can babysit again. No, forgiveness is not idiotic. 
But forgiveness does determine how we look at someone, all right? So Nick Cannon, after repeating some of the typical Louis Farrakhan anti-Semitic diatribes and tropes, has apologized. I want to read some of that for a moment. Our posture should be, as in this case, sin against Jews, as Jews, we forgive you. We forgive you, and we hope to really get educated here and so on. Now, does it mean that there are not consequences to his actions? That's for others to decide, all right? God forgives us doesn't mean that he takes away the consequences of our actions. You, you may break the law, and, and God will forgive you, but you still go to jail for what you did, all right? So the consequences of his words, and that, that's another story, but our attitude should be one of forgiveness. All right, here's the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Any Jewish-related question of any kind, and I especially welcome those who differ with me on subjects regarding Israel or Messianic prophecy or whatever, please give me a call, 866-348-7884. Say, Dr. Brown, I've been listening to your show for like 10 years, and you, you do that all the time and invite people to call who differ with you. How often does it happen? Because I never hear it. Yeah, I never hear it either. Maybe one in, let's just say, of course, for a year or two, one in 100, 200 shows. I mean, it's hardly ever. And you say, well, I guess the people that disagree, you don't listen. Of course they listen. I get blasted by them day and night. They just don't call. Oh, that's a shame. 866-34-TRUTH. Before I read some of Nick Cannon's apology, let me throw this out to you. We are on the front lines of important Jewish outreach. Because God's called me to do apologetics, to answer and refute the counter-missionaries and the rabbis that oppose our faith, to help those struggling and with questions, we, by God's grace, have equipped many leaders, apologetics ministries, others in the body over the years. And we are in the early stages now of a major video series, uh, point for point for point, rebutting some of the most dangerous videos online. I mean, it's, it's going to be an amazing tool, and it is going to demolish lies and present truth. Would you be praying for us? And if you can help us, would you stand with us financially? Click on the Donate button on the Facebook page. Just mention this once a show normally because it's, it's an easy way to give online. If you're watching on Facebook, let's just click on Donate there. On YouTube, there is a dollar sign beneath the chat box. Click on there or go to our website, askdrbrown.org. Just click on Donate. I saw someone posted in Facebook earlier, and they said, you know, um, <clears throat> Uh, Dr. Brown, I went to donate, and Facebook already had my finance info. It's not Facebook. Well, if you gave through Facebook, then they'd have it in a recurring way, okay? So if you gave through Facebook, that would be there. Uh, but otherwise, if you store it online, then it's there. In other words, you, you go anywhere. It could be with Google or whoever. So don't be surprised. If you stored it online, then it, it'll just wait for a security code or something. But it's not like Facebook dug into your records. They don't have the power to do that, so don't worry about that. All right. Nick Cannon. Uh, Well, hang on. I pulled up up the wrong article. The article that I pulled up is the wrong article. Okay. So here, let me read it off another screen. Nick Cannon apologizes for being anti-Semitic, but not for calling white people evil, rapists, and savage. As Black stars back him in Charlemagne, the God says, Viacom CBS firing proves Jews have the power. Charlemagne, the God of influential podcaster. That's the name. Yeah. 
now, he did say, you know, he should have talked to a Jewish scholar and got more educated about these things before saying what he said. And maybe the apologies to whites will come next as whites are apologizing to, apologizing to blacks. Does everybody apologize to each other? Um, but as, as you scroll down, uh, he seems to be very sincere. Here's what he said. First and foremost, I extend my deepest and most superior, sincere apologies to my Jewish sisters and brothers for the hurtful and divisive words that came out of my mouth during my interview with Richard Griffin. They reinforced the worst stereotypes of a proud and magnificent people, and I feel ashamed of the uninformed and naive place that these words came from. The video of this interview has since been removed. Now, just pause there. We'll leave the text up on our screen, those that are watching, but just pause there. You don't say those things about the Jewish people, speaking of them as a proud and magnificent people, saying, I feel ashamed. And in my view, unless you really think you blew it. In other words, that's not just PR. You may say, you are so, Mike Brown, you are so ignorant, naive. You just, I'm, I'm just telling you that it's one thing when someone says, well, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that anyone was hurt by my words. That's not a real apology. You know, I punched you in the face. I'm sorry I'd hurt you. An apology is, I, I was wrong to punch you in the face. It was unjustified and, and wrong, and, and I take full responsibility, and I apologize. What can I do to make it right? To say these kinds of things seems very sincere to me. He, he said, on my podcast, I used words and reference literature I assumed to be factual to uplift my community. In other words, to say to blacks, hey, you're the real Jews, you're the real Israelites. Instead, it turned out to be hateful propaganda and stereotypical rhetoric that pained another community. For this, I am deeply sorry but now together we can write a new chapter of healing. That, to me, is the way you do it. You, you mess up. And you say, okay, what can we do to make things right? Well, I, I keep getting educated as I, as I grow and learn in the Lord and understand things more. can reach out to people more effectively. And, yeah, and, and he's, he's um, again, highlighting here that he didn't uh, take back or apologize for what he said about whites. Again, one step at a time. Hopefully he'll deal with that, too. Um, but but he, he's already spoken with a, with a key rabbi. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Viacom said he's clear and remorseful that his words were wrong and lacked both understanding and context and inadvertently promoted hate. That was important for us to observe. Nick had sincerely apologized and quickly taken steps to educate himself and make amends and so on. Um, he, he also uh, already spoken with Rabbi Abraham Cooper. I believe it was, and Nick Cannon referenced that. Now, here's, here's the only issue I have. So we'll, we'll stop with that article now. But here's, here's the only issue I have. He's still going to be host on The Masked Singer, despite what he said about whites. That's crazy. That's, that's crazy. If, if somebody said that, if, if, if a, a white host said outrageous and horrific and ugly demonic, terrible things about blacks, and they could stay on, that, that'd be just as outrageous. You say, well, whites did that for years. Yeah, we've had a lot of sin in our society, but we don't tolerate that now. So, again, I'm not trying to throw him under the bus because I appreciate his apology to the Jewish community, but you got to fix the other thing. you got to fix the other thing. So Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has addressed this. Uh, he has called this out. And... Uh, he has raised the issue of lack of attention uh, to anti-Semitism in certain black circles. 
And let me read this. I've got my new article up on the stream, Racism Cannot Drive Out Racism. And I, I quote him here. He says, when reading the dark, squishy entrails of popular culture, marriage in the face of sustained prejudice is an indisputable sign of the coming apathalypse, apathy to all forms of social justice. After all, if it's okay to discriminate against one group of people by hauling out cultural stereotypes without much pushback, it must be okay to do the same to others. Illogic begets illogic. Exactly. Hatred begets hatred. Racism produces more racism. So you overcome racism with respect. You overcome racism by learning, by understanding, by fixing things, by treating people with respect, not by bringing in other racism. And, and he closed with these words, the lesson never changes. So why is it so hard for some people to learn? No one is free until everyone is free. As Martin Luther King Jr. explained, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. That was the King quote. So let's act like it. If we're going to be outraged by injustice, let's be outraged by injustice against anyone. And at the beginning of the article, I, I quote uh, a, a well-known British rapper and podcast host, Zuby, who tweeted out, black man himself, like Al-Gujabar, to whom it may concern, it is possible to uplift a group of people without denigrating another. So that's what we have to do. Let us uplift those who have been put down and oppressed without denigrating and destroying others in the process. Remember, hatred produces more hatred. Darkness, as Dr. King said, doesn't drive out darkness. So let's not let anti-Semitism be the new accepted form of racism or ethnic or religious hatred. Let's step higher, friends. All right, we'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, I guess uh, better late than never. All right. We'll stay on alert with that. 866-34-TRUTH. That is the number to call with your Jewish-related questions. I, I want to just tell you something personally. You know, over the decades, being confronted with Jewish objections to Jesus, especially in my earliest years, they were very formidable and very solid and serious. And to this day, I get confronted with new ones and interact with rabbis and others and people right in wondering and struggling and... and uh, what I love is the journey of discovery. You dig deeper and find out more. And it's so faith-building. Even if your faith is strong, it just builds on the strength of that faith. And that continues to be something that happens with me. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let us go over to Los Angeles. Anne, welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you so much. Um, I have a—okay, background of my question is just that— I, the, the passage in Micah that says, um, what does God require of you but to do justly and love mercy and yeah. walk humbly with your God, mm -hmm. is, is a quoted a lot. And then we kind of go off on this tangent. Of, we just kind of riff on that. Like, then we bring our idea of justice and our idea of mercy 
So I, I just got curious today, and I want I want more of that context. So I started reading Micah, you know, right at the beginning, mm-hmm. and there's just a whole lot there that I don't understand. So my question is, can you recommend a good um, background commentary for the book of Micah? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, Micah is a contemporary of, of, of the prophet Isaiah, and they, they both contain an oracle, a similar oracle, Isaiah 2 and, and Micah, the, the fourth chapter. Uh, but he is lesser known because of the prominence of Isaiah and, and his role. But you put them in that, in that rough time period. Uh, there, there are a number of good commentaries on, on Micah. There is one I enjoyed uh, years ago. It's, it's a few commentaries um, in one. Leslie Allen, A-L-L-E-N. It's Joel, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah, all in one. Okay. Uh, so that's, uh, Leslie Allen's a great Old Testament scholar, but, but very readable, so it's, it's solid uh, scholarship. And that, that was one of my favorites. I, I thought he did a real good job um, in dealing with that. Um, I'm just trying to look at what's accessible and, and readable that doesn't get, um, doesn't get too, too technical, but does go into depth. Um, a little shorter, the Tyndale Old Testament commentary series, David Baker. So that's Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah. So it doesn't have Joel in it as the other does. Uh, but David Baker, another fine scholar, and that was in the Tyndale commentary series, which was normally a little shorter than New International. Um, and then, maybe, but those those are two good ones. Um, Any John, Jewish kind of background? Back, you know, oh Jewish. yeah, yeah, sure, sure, of course. Just uh, if, if just type in Art Scroll, one word, Art Scroll, and then Micah, and that will give you. Um, that will give you the uh, the commentary on the book of Micah as excerpted. Oh, let's just see here. Um, hang on. Let's just change what we search for here just on Amazon. Um, yeah, for the book of Micah being released. Um, I was actually looking for a Michael L. Brown one, but they didn't have it. No, they don't have it. No, Jeremiah <laughs> and Job are done, and Isaiah I'm, I'm working on, but no, I haven't. I haven't even thought of doing something on, on Micah. Um, there, there, are, there are Jewish commentaries that will, will basically take you through the classic commentaries of old and then get into some of the newer stuff. But a lot of it draws on the, uh, the classic commentaries. So I'm just trying to see on Micah what is actually available yeah, I, I'm just not seeing one. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing all the standard Old Testament ones by various Old Testament scholars, etc., but not one that is just focused. James Lindbergh, his interpretation commentary, L-I-M-B-U-R-G, on Hosea and Micah is, is certainly of, of value. I mean, there's, there's just a, a ton that's out there. I'm looking for, for what's most readable. Um, yeah, this is an Israeli, but it's it's not going to be what you're looking for here. Um, yeah, norm, normally with each book of the of the Bible, there are translations of the of the standard Jewish commentaries into English, but then you need someone to explain them to you. In other words, they're coming from very different angles and answering very different questions. But there doesn't right. seem to be a lot out on Micah yet. What you can do, if if what I recommend it does not fully help. 
shoot a note to our website, nstartyourbrown.org. There's a contact us. And one of my colleagues, uh, who's a Russian-Israeli Jew, PhD in Old Testament, will also give you some of his recommendations, okay? Okay, great. All right. Thanks a lot. Sure thing, sure thing. All right. Um, sorry to take so long trying to dig for some of those things, but always trying to think, okay, what is it that I'm missing? It's not off the top of my head that I can recommend, so I wanted to do that. Okay, we stay in California. Mark, welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. I wanted to ask about uh, the spiritual nature of Torah. Yeah. And uh, if keeping, uh, keep, uh, keeping Torah, is that like how Samson got his uh, power uh, with the Nazarite vow? And then uh, finally, um, is, is the Lord keeping all Torah? Uh, did that result in him being given like all power in heaven and earth? I, I just, just a kind of an overview of the spiritual yeah. nature of Torah, please. Yeah, yeah so, so Paul does mention in Romans 7 that the law is, is spiritual. Uh, we know that and understand that it's God's word. Uh, but no, Samson. The only thing he was required to do was the Nazarite vow, and specifically not to cut his hair. So he he slept with prostitutes, and he still had power. He obviously disobeyed all kinds of divine commandments, and uh, was still uh, was still supernaturally used by God. So he just had a covenant; he couldn't cut his hair. That was the deal. He sinned a lot. Of, here, you you could read in Judges 16 where he sleeps with a prostitute and gets up in the middle of the night and carries the gates of the city off with him when the Philistines attack him. So he sleeps with a, a pagan prostitute, vi- grossly violating the law, and, and yet uh, because he didn't cut his hair, he still had power. Uh, Jesus walked in perfect obedience to the Father, and all authority in heaven and earth was given to him, not because he was Torah observant, but because he was the perfect Son of God who never sinned. And he did not need Torah to not sin. He was in perfect fellowship with his father. Uh, Nowhere does the New Testament call Gentile believers to follow the new covenant, excuse me, the Sinai covenant. Nowhere does it say that Jewish believers are obligated in a legal sense to keep the Sinai covenant. We're under a new and better covenant. So the purpose of the Torah was was to bring us to a place of recognizing our need for God, our need for redemption, forgiveness, that we would seek him for mercy, and that we could now uh, find the Messiah who is pointed to in the Torah and now lead a new life of obedience. Now, some of the Torah commandments are things that will be always. You know, the command not to murder is an always command. That'll never change. The command not to commit adultery is an always command. That'll never change. But there are other things that were, were there Uh, as types and shadows to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And certainly everyone would agree that in the eternal age, we're not going to need sacrifices for sin. In the eternal age, we're not going to need cleansing for touching dead bodies because there's not going to be dead bodies. Things will have changed. So some of that change has already happened that we're experiencing now through the New and Better Covenant, and some will happen in, in the world to come. Uh, but there have been changes, so our goal is not to submit to the Sinai Covenant. Our goal is to live in full obedience to the New and Better Covenant, which is now fully articulated in the New Testament writings. Hey, Mark, thank you for asking. I do appreciate it. And, and look, friends, we tend to go to one extreme or the other. We tend to reject Torah as this law, that's legalism, that's bad, that's old, that's outdated, that's outmoded. 
that's away from let's get away from us. It's thank God we're under grace and not under law. That's that's the one extreme. The other extreme is that every Christian is required to obey the the Mosaic law, and 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 if you don't keep everything that you can possibly keep, then you're in disobedience and sin, and God's not pleased. Those are both erroneous extremes and unhealthy extremes. And God writes his Torah on our hearts as New Covenant believers, all right? But does it mean, for example, that if there was a physical temple that we'd be automatically offering sacrifices? No, it means that we experience the fullness of forgiveness because Messiah has become the once and for all sacrifice for sins. And even with Sabbath observance, Paul reminds us in Colossians 2 that that's the shadow, the substance is found in the Messiah. So it doesn't mean the shadow is wrong or evil, but it means that the substance is found in the Messiah. All right, friends, we are just about out of time, but I'm going to do something I never did before. And to Steve coming on with the next show on Truth Radio, I see your guest. Tell him he owes me a phone call. Yeah, I see who your guest is. Tell him he owes me a phone call. All right, friends, check out all the resources, Jewish-related and other, at askdrbrown.org. Share them with a friend, and let's continue to pray for a great harvest where Jewish men and women, young and old, come to know the truth about God and the Messiah. We're out of time. Back with you with your questions tomorrow. Shake the name.